The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, today we're going to get an update on the China-Africa trade situation. Not surprisingly, it's been a pretty dismal year when it comes to trade. We've got the first half trade figures for 2020 that came in a few weeks ago. Two-way trade between China and Africa fell by almost 20% in the first half of the year to $82.37 billion. To be honest, I was a little surprised that it was just 20%, but nonetheless, that is a stunning drop. China reduced its imports from the continent by 31%, and exports fell by 8.3%. So what does that mean in numbers? Uh, So China sold about $48 billion worth of goods in the first six months of the year, and imported just $34 billion of goods, mostly in raw materials from Africa. So this year, we're probably on track for somewhere about $170, $180 billion of two-way trade between China and Africa. That's still a pretty large number, but nowhere near where we were in 2015, which was at about $220 billion. And for the most part, since 2015, it's hovered somewhere in between $150 and $200 billion. Now, just to be sure here, China is the largest bilateral trading partner from Africa, but it's not the largest trading partner. Europe as a whole has that distinction right there. So we're getting some good news in some sense that Kenya's trade figures popped up in July. And Cobus, right now, it's a little bit of a mixed bag depending on where you are in the continent. And for those countries that depend on raw materials and commodities and natural resources, they're going to face a more difficult time, particularly when oil prices are so low. But other countries like Ethiopia that's starting to become manufacturing, uh, they might have a better shot. But it's a mixed bag across the continent. Yeah, like on the one hand, we have the short-term impact of, of COVID-19 um, and the fact that that harbors shut down and shipping shut down. So that, of course, you know, impacted trade on both sides. And then we have longer-term trends, you know, with kind of slow declines, for example, in for uh, Chinese oil buying in Africa. So even even if it weren't for the COVID crisis, oil, um, oil buying from China uh, by China from Africa would have declined anyway, uh, but of course not as sharply. So, you know, so it's, it's a bit of a complicated situation to disentangle the long-term trends from the short-term crisis. Well, there are some indications that the second half of the year might be better than the first half of the year. The United Nations Conference on Trade and Development just released some new data that the number of ships pulling into ports to unload and load containers have rebounded in many parts of the world. And they're expecting it in the third quarter to really be strong, much stronger than it is now. So with that in mind... Let's get the view of what's happening in China. And we love to have Walter Rigu, who's been on our show a number of times in the past, who gives us a real ground level view of the trading perspective. He is the managing director of Kamal, that's China Africa Merchants Advisors Limited, although he doesn't only work now between China and Africa, but also in the Persian Gulf and elsewhere. Uh, Walter, a very good, good afternoon to you. Yes. Hello, Eric. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you back, and it's great to be able to get you to give some perspective on on where things are. 
let's just start with a very simple open-ended question. You're a guy who puts things into containers to send them from China to other parts of the world and to bring them from Africa into China. How's business these days? I think the first thing to discuss would be to put everything in context, um, because last time we spoke, uh, I believe it was around March, China was facing, uh, uh, we were facing a supply uh, crunch. But uh, at the end of March, because China had its recovery, it was no longer a supply issue because the rest of the world, uh, you know, also started to shut down. So we had a demand crunch. And overall, the demand crunch was actually worse uh, than the supply crunch. And the reason is that China's recovery, I think, happened quicker than most people had expected. So at the beginning, uh, especially in the months of April, May, and June, um, there was a big problem because the demand pretty much fell to, to zero. But what has happened in the world that is interesting is that we are seeing a, a resurgence of Keynesian economics because with the many GDPs down, the government's now uh, moving to show, to show the economy. And the surest way to show up the economy is to build things so you can boost the GDP. So what in turn we are seeing now is that there's an increasing rise, um, for instance, construction equipment. There is an increasing demand of raw materials that are used in that sector. So I would say, of course, 2020 is nowhere as good as 2019, especially H1. But we're clearly seeing a recovery, and I'm optimistic. And, you know, the orders are coming in now, especially, like I said, in the back of this rising uh, Keynesian economics. So is that a situation, um, you know, that you're seeing in Africa as well, that there's more construction going on to, to actually boost the economy? What we're seeing now is that the governments are beginning to push those policies, and there are already companies that are asking for these kind of products. But as you know, uh, government projects, they always take a long time. Um, so we are seeing definitely that, you know, they, by the end of the year, we should have good demand from companies that are, will be working on public projects. Uh, what COVID forced us to do is to look at new markets. And, you know, we also changed our strategy of digital marketing. And so I think this is a funny um, anecdote because... Prior to COVID, we were not big users of Facebook to promote our procurement services because, you know, we're dealing with manufacturing and construction and mining. So we thought, you know, it's not the appropriate platform. But what we have discovered in the last three months is that Facebook is actually a bastion for a lot of SMEs in the developing world. So we have... Uh, we have attracted new client. It's a new segment we are we are working with, and you know, I never thought that people would order excavators and you know industrial chemicals through Facebook. But you know, it's a platform that works helping countries and is being used that way. And we're happy to 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 serve those clients. So that's also an interesting um, outcome that is happening. And that didn't happen before COVID. This is something new, you said, right? No, I think it was there before, for sure. But I'm talking about us as a company. We never paid attention to that. But we were forced by COVID to, you know, look at our marketing and look at our channels. And the result is that, you know, we can get clients as far as Peru. And, you know, it's a small company that is in need of construction equipment. and you know, because these companies are the SMEs, they're the ones who are forced to 
to really cut back. So they're looking for cost savings. They're looking at new channels. So for that, um, it it has it has it has worked in our favor um, a bit. When we spoke in March, you talked about some of the the broader trading system in China not being fully back online, whereas some of the ports were starting to open up again but other workers weren't able to go to factories and the truckers weren't being able to work and that whole supply chain wasn't there. Is that now fully, is China fully back up and running again in terms of all parts of the supply chain that leads into the into the trading system? And what are you hearing from places like the port of Mombasa, Durban and other ports in Africa? From the, from the China ports, they have been open for a long time. Uh, the only constraint now is not a domestic constraint. It's an it's a international constraint. So the capacity is low, not because there are no people to work or because there is a shutdown. It's just because the demand is not enough. So th- that answers the first question. Um, as far as the overseas ports, we have shipped cargo recently to Durban and Mombasa ports, and there is no issue. So I think the world is opening up. Most countries are opening up. And what is happening is that we are seeing a lot of our clients, um, they have no choice because you can only stay shut down for so long. And so, you know, the companies, they're recovering and um, getting back to work. And, you know, how, how does that break down across sector? Are there certain products that, that have kind of picked up much faster than other ones? Yes, I, the most important is uh, the, the 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 products that are picked up the fastest are the consumables that are used in the manufacturing sector because without these products, the factories cannot operate. What we have seen uh, slow down a lot is the capital equipment because, of course, capital expenditure is always put in the back burner when in a situation where the company is down or the economy is down. So, you know, raw materials that are feeding the factories, uh, industrial chemicals, those are still moving. But um, some of the equipment, we had a lot of clients who had, you know, plans to buy equipment, but some of those have been shelved until next year. So one of the consequences of COVID-19 that a lot of people are starting to forecast is that Chinese spending or in loans for big infrastructure projects like the Standard Gate Rail Gauge Railway in Kenya will probably be much harder to come by in the future. The Chinese don't have the appetite for these high-risk deals. And at the same time, there's a concern in many African countries about the debt sustainability. The impact on trade is that a lot of the trade that went back and forth between, say, China and Kenya over the past five or six years was heavy machinery to build these big infrastructure projects. Are you seeing, too, that the consequences are affected by the maybe the, the the downturn in the loan programs and that would in fact it would impact the the infrastructure building you know the danger of conducting analysis between china and africa especially when it comes to trade and investment is that there's a lot of things that are happening at the same time right so already before covid there was a you know there was a reduction in investment um with covid that has accelerated not only the china africa axis but the the local Chinese economic axis. So this means that, you know, the government has to spend more domestically to to show up uh, the economy. And, you know, China actually has put in a lot of uh, renminbi towards financing public projects because, like I said, it's not only in China, but throughout the world, there's this resurgence of Keynesian economies. So, you know, to answer your question, I think it's tricky because 
how much do we allocate to, you know, the, you know, capital is fungible. So a lot of the capital now will be used domestically. But also, as you saw, uh, the phase two, the second phase of the railway was not going to be financed anyway. And this, this decision was made a while back. I think what, is be, what will be interesting to watch will be the next FOCAC, which is scheduled for Dakar, but I'm sure will be moved. Um, the timeline maybe will be moved. At that FOCAC in Dakar, um, I'll be watching very closely the announcements for which projects are going to be financed, what's going to be happen, uh, what's going to happen, because there's also been a shift on how China, in, when I say China in this case, I'm referring to the, to the central authorities because that's the main avenue for engaging through FOCAC. For instance, if you recall in the last FOCAC, there was a lot of investment uh, that went to buying more goods from Africa, there was investment put into, you know, uh, training, not only for education, but also military. So there's a, you know, the, the relationship is becoming more diverse. So actually, I'm very, um, I can't wait for the FOCAC in Dakar because that will really, sh you know, it's, it's a showcase on how the relationship is moving based on what will be financed and what projects will come to the forefront. And of course, the key, um, the key thing to look for will be the overall number, because every year, the number, every three years in FOCAC, the, the, the amount of dollar committed has always doubled. So I, I am skeptical that the next year uh, it will double, but, you know, it remains to be seen. You know, we, we talked about about kind of industrial um, trade and, and construction. I was wondering what, what your impressions are of consumer trade. Um, we've seen you know a company like Transian, for example, who mostly does uh, sells mobile phones in Africa, posted pretty respectable um, earnings. Um, so how, how is how are Chinese goods doing in Africa, um, and and were they very kind of impacted by the by the shutdown? The idiosyncrasy of consumer goods is that they're very locally dependent, and the companies like you know Trans uh, Transion and all these companies that are going to um, go after the local market, they need local presence. Whereas in the heavy industry sector, you don't really need um, a local presence. So, you know, the Chinese companies in Africa they're not unique from any other company in the sense that. When the economy shut down and the consumers are reducing their spending, of course, they will be impacted too. But um, I think the advantage they may have is that, you know, China recovered fast and quickly. So if their parent companies are still based in China, then, you know, they could, they could benefit from that. But um, the consumer industry is very locally uh, dependent. One issue that is happening that is affecting trade uh, is the it's a big issue, is the exchange rate. Because at the beginning, the renminbi had depreciated to, you know, over seven renminbi to the dollar. And this, you know, is a, is a very large drop. But this for us was a boon because, you know, we are working in the export industry. So we were able to generate cost savings and more cost savings for our clients. But recently, again, the renminbi has started to appreciate again. Right now, the exchange rate is not very... It's, it's not very stable. So even most of the pricing that we are doing, we can only quote for maybe a week, you know, and then we have to wait to see how the exchange rate moves. Would that be a good reason then to promote the internationalization of the RMB? And that's been an experiment that's been underway in Africa for several years. Nigeria, for example, added the RMB to its basket of reserve currencies. I think Uganda 
and, and a number of other countries have experimented with it. And the idea would be that you don't have to convert into dollars, that African buyers can then purchase goods in RMB without having to go through the exchange rate. Would that help someone in your situation to avoid these fluctuations like what you're talking about in terms of doing more business in RMB? From a theoretical point of view, of course, it would, it would help. But right now, it's a very, very small part of the international trade. I believe it's almost 5% or so. So what this means is that the average overseas uh, company does not have access to renminbi. And when you're dealing with capital equipment and the outflows are, are, are high, then that means that the average company or the average person in overseas should have access to the, to the renminbi so that they can remit it. But at the moment, um, we are still far from that. Um, the, the recent announcements of uh, you know, internationalization of the renminbi is still very focused on government to government and large institutions. It's going to happen, but it's going to happen at a very small pace. And you know, I don't think it's going to happen for the, for, in the foreseeable future for, for, for the average uh, trading. Because for the average trading to, to, to be able to use renminbi, the, the currency has to be freely available. And your clients have to, uh, like for, for all of the, the, the work that you do, your clients have to convert to dollar all the time? Yes, assuming they don't and, have dollars. In the, in the, and, and roughly, like, what, what is the, sorry, this is a very naive question, but like, what, what is the kind of cost implications for them? Like, how, how much more expensive does that make things? You know, honestly, it depends on the product. You know, if you're buying something for only a few hundred dollars and the conversion is uh, is a rounding error. But when you're spending millions, then that, you know, it gets multiplied. So when the product is very expensive and, you know, the client will accumulate the capital, you know, there's always a danger that the exchange rate will change before they're able to remit payment. So there are companies that work on hedging or we work with the factories to, you know, to lock in a price. Especially we see this a lot in the steel sector because the steel prices, sometimes they're only valid for two days. But the time to make the payment and, you know, to send the letter of credit might take a week or two. So there's always these negotiations around, you know, locking in the price. And that means, you know, it's not only the supplier that needs to lock in the price, they also need to lock in the raw materials with their suppliers. So it's a, it's, it's a small complexity of international trade, but it, it happens and there are ways to do it. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Several years ago, we, when we first spoke with you, you talked about that there was a lot of enthusiasm among Chinese business people, SMEs, state-owned enterprises, really across the board of doing business in Africa. Talk to us a little bit about the attitude, the mood, the sentiment right now in, in, in Beijing among your clients in terms of do they want to invest in Africa and do trade with Africa or are they looking now to the Persian Gulf or other points along the Belt and Road? What's the sentiment in terms of their views of Africa that you're picking up from your clients? Right now, the general sentiment in China for most companies I've talked to and I've dealt with is that nobody wants to do anything overseas because of COVID. Because first of all, if you leave, it's not necessarily you'll be able to come back. So right now, everything is stopped. 
And, you know, like I said, the problem with analyzing uh, such big trends is that there's a lot of things happening at the same time. I think before COVID, definitely there was a lot of enthusiasm, uh, not only for Africa, but for, for mainly developing countries, because, the, you know, there's high risk, but there's high return. And so that was what was a driving factor. And during the first China-Africa economic forum that was held in Changsha, Changsha is positioning itself as the main city in China that will be the gateway for investments uh, in Africa. And at that conference, you know, there were a lot of private companies and also state companies that were very enthusiastic about, you know, potential projects. And not only that, the local governments, like the local Changsha government, had rebates for Chinese companies that would invest in certain countries in certain projects. But now because of COVID, everything has uh, has come to a, to, a, to a standstill. And actually there's one company that was to invest in an assembly, a vehicle assembly plant in Kenya from, from Hunan. And, you know, they have not traveled. They had planned to do that project in January and right now it's still on hold. So, Yes, COVID has done quite a bit of uh, damage in terms of uh, economics. You know, as we see in China, it, that too will pass. And uh, I think the, the interest will pick up again. How are you looking at the rest of the year? As you, as you mentioned, you know, kind of China has largely dealt with the COVID situation and things are roughly back to normal, but the rest of the world is still, you know, crazy. And also, it's it's not like it's a, the recovery is a linear process. We're seeing places we, which had it quite well under control, so then suddenly having spikes again. Um, so, you know, kind of like how like how, how does one deal with that kind of un, un complexity, you know, kind of when, you, when you're looking forward on your own business? Yes, for us, the, the, the biggest advantage we've had has been diverse, diversification, right? Because we have clients all over the world. So we're not only dependent on one country. That has uh, helped. Two, uh, our new marketing system um, has helped us find clients in places we never thought. For instance, we have just sent uh, some cargo to Greece and another one to Austria. And, you know, before 2020, we really never had any European clients. But, um, you, know, you know, we cannot control COVID. We cannot control the government. So we, uh, we, we take what is given. And so it's, you know, as, as a private company, we are forced to, to deal with the reality. And the reality is that, you know, some of the important markets for us and clients, they, they're not doing anything. So we cannot sit around and wait for everybody to recover. We have to find who is working and, and who is not. And... You know, for instance, um, we we do have some good clients in South Africa, and you know, there are two clients who are actually close to each other, and one is pretty much recovered, and the other one is still on lockdown. So I don't know. Some of these decisions are also company decisions. We try to diversify. We try to find people who you know will will have value to our service because we're really offering the best of China, right? We are trying to get the best equipment here the, the, and, 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 and offer cost savings. And at the same time, for instance, um, in November, there'll be the Shanghai Bomber, which is one of the largest expos for construction equipment. And the, the, main, the main expo is usually held in Germany, but in Asia, the main one is, is in Shanghai. So I'm really looking forward to that because you know, a lot of the Chinese companies, they're moving very rapidly and there's a lot of investment in R&D. 
So once we understand that, you know, we're able to offer more value to our clients, wherever they may be. And like I said, uh, Europe has never been a target market for us until this year. Is the U.S.-China trade dispute, conflict, war, whatever you want to call it, having any impact on your business? Yes, for sure, because this is, a, you know, I mean, these are the two largest economies in the world. And like I said, one of the big issues affecting our, our, our business is the exchange rate. Right, so exchange rate fluctuations is directly tied to what happens between uh, U.S. and China. You know, there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of uh, talk in, in, in the with regards to this issue. And so, also some of the companies might have a wait and see attitude, which you know also impact their procurement strategy. So yes, it's there, but like I said, these are big issues. And as a private company, we have to we have to find a way to, to work around them because we cannot change them. One of the big problems in the China-Africa trading relationship today, and it's been one for a long time, is the massive trade deficits that all African countries, for the most part, except some of the oil-producing countries, have with China. Do you have any thoughts after all your years in doing this business of what African countries can do to narrow that trade deficit in short-term practical terms? From a high level, I think it's quite simple. You could you could study what China did. You know, up until 1993, China was a net exporter of oil, right? And I used to export a lot of raw materials to Japan and uh, and the advanced economies. So the only way, of course, is to is to increase the industrialization. I mean, that's a simple uh, it might seem simple statement, but you know, a lot of factories, I visited thousands, and that's no exaggeration, thousands of factories. What amazes me is that actually most of them are not very, um, they're not very high tech, but what makes them work is the additional supply chain. Somebody can be making a very simple product, but what makes them competitive is not what they're making. It's their knowledge of where to get all the parts that they're assembled together. So, I think what will happen uh, is that there are certain industries that China is losing competitiveness. And I mean, there's no secret because as the, as the economy moves to the next middle income stage, there are certain industries that are no longer uh, viable. So a lot of those industries will have to move out. But, you know, to move, to move a factory is very difficult. It's not moving the factory that is actually the big, big problem. The problem is all the feeder industries. And actually, you can see this in the recent um, Japan and Korea, but their companies in China, a lot of subsidies to move back. But very few have agreed to, right? Because it's not only about the company moving back, it's about the talent pool. You know, it's about the local government policy. It's about, you know, the, the upstream uh, supply chain. It's also about the local market. So, you know, for for countries that are for countries in Africa that have you know better positionings in these four areas, then of course there is potential, but there really needs to be a better understanding of of the China stories. And I think there are a few NGOs and a few government bodies that are working on it. I think PIGA is working with the Chinese government and the UN to promote some of these linkages. So I mean it's a big it's a big question, and there's no simple answer. And also the most important thing is that what is the option? What is the other option, right? And I think we also have seen the attitude of uh, of the Chinese authorities also change. 
we can see this through the actions in Pokak. Pokak six years ago, nine years ago, what was the key? What were the key issues on the agenda was not the same as 2018. And so that's why I cannot wait for the next Pokak to see what issues will be on the agenda. Because if if all the African countries are all talking about the deficit and this deficit issue, then of course it will have to be addressed. Well, you know, kind of like if, if you're advising African governments, um, frequently, frequently, you know, kind of in Africa, the, the logic is that the place to start is to try and beneficiate some of these these kind of raw materials um, to try and, you know, uh, try and kind of add value to the raw materials that's being, that's being exported. Um, and in some cases, you know, like cocoa, for example, it, I think it makes a lot of sense. In other cases, that that implies a, a very large kind of capital um, outlay to, to do it. Um, like, like when you're speaking, you know, if, if you were to advise, um, you know, African governments on this issue, um, where would you advise them to start? I think the first thing is that there is, the, the first thing to know is that there is no one size fits all. And the second thing is that there is no unique uh, development story, even within China, because some of the local provinces, what they did and what other provinces did is completely different. So, you know, I would not be in the position to be advising them because they're the ones who know more about their own local situation. And I think the word beneficiation, it sounds good, and politicians like to throw it there, and it's a populist term. But if you look at a country like Australia, most of its exports to China are raw material. And if you look at a country like South Africa um, and you look at chrome, you know, most of, uh, almost 70% of the chrome is uh, sent to China and South Africa re-imports the ferrochrome. But then if you ask, somebody might say, you know, why are we buying ferrochrome when we have all this chrome? But factories in China that process the chrome into ferrochrome, most of them are located in the northern parts of, you know, Ningxia province, Inner Mongolia province. And those places have offered, you know, very cheap electricity to the factories that are producing the ferrochrome. But if you're gonna set up ferrochrome plants in South Africa, and you know the situation with ESCOM, right? So it's not it's not that people don't want to beneficiate, but there's usually a reason that beneficiation is not is not happening. And also to only depend on one industry is not really a suitable strategy. And more important also is the market. Once you beneficiate the product, do you have the market? Right. This also has to do with the trading system and the, the supply chain situation, because if you're going to do if you're going to have the capital outlay, you must ensure that you have the markets. And if it's a competitive market, then you need to ensure your product has a has a fair price. Right. So it, it's not it's not a simple it's not a simple solution. I mean, of course, some of those problems can be taken care of by subsidies. But if you're going to subsidize such industries, then that means money is fungible and you're moving it from another part of the economy. So it's not, it's not simple. But one thing I've seen in China is that there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of try and error. And there have been a lot of failures. There are a lot of factories that have failed. But you know, people never see the failures. People only see the success. And I think also it's very important to study the failures. For instance, right now, there's a huge drive for, for, for innovation and high-tech industries. And so there's a lot of capital companies that will never succeed. But from the perspective of the domestic perspective is that it doesn't matter those companies that fail. So long as we get these one or two uh, you know, success stories, then the, the, the cost will be worth it. So it's a, that's a very local um, you know, Chinese view of the economy as opposed to some of the Western uh, you know, economists who say that 
you know, government should not be allocating capital. But, you know, the China view is that if we waste all this capital, but we get this one or two, uh, you know, champions, it's worth it. It's not only China thing, right? It's also worked the industrial policy in Japan and also in South Korea. So I really think that um, uh, the African governments can learn a lot by just looking at China and trying to understand what actually happens on the micro level. Because if you only look at the macro level, you'll only see the big successes or you will see the big, the big blunders. Walter Rigo is the managing director of Camel Group, who does a lot of trade now beyond just Africa and China, but also to the Persian Gulf, Middle East, and into Europe as well. And we check in with Walter every few months just to get a perspective on what the trading dynamic is and, as always, provides us amazing insights. Walter, thank you so much for taking time out of your extraordinarily busy day. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you for having me. And if you post on LinkedIn quite a bit, a little bit on Twitter, if people want to find you on your various social media channels or if they want to connect with Kamal Group, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? The best way to find us is through our website. It's C-A-M-A-L-T-D.com. Uh, yeah, we'll put a link to that. And I'll also put a link to your LinkedIn. On your LinkedIn page from time to time, you post these great pictures of when you're at factories or on the subway and just daily life in China and seeing that. And that's really a lot of fun. So well, once again, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Kobus, it is always refreshing to touch base with Walter because he messes everything up. He complicates everything. And I think that's really, really important right now because so often when we hear the China-Africa discourse go on, it is so simple. Africa needs to do this. China needs to do that. And what one of the consistencies that we heard throughout our discussion today with Walter was the fact that it's complicated. It's messy. It's not simple. And you can't tell necessarily where we are in this moment right now, because six different factors are influencing that. So be cautious about coming to any conclusions based on what's going on right now. That, again, is one of the themes of our show where the China-Africa relationship never, never, never lines up in terms of clean, neat, this is that, and this is the other. It's really just very, very complicated. And I like hearing that and reminds me, it grounds me to hear that from someone like Walter, who is actually doing this every day. Yeah, and it's also very interesting to to get this perspective um, from a sector where there's so many so many different actors doing kind of lots of different things, you know, which is a dumb way of saying, you know, fre frequently in when one focuses on diplomatic or government kind of action in in China Africa circles, things, you know. Um, you hear a lot of the same thing. You hear a lot of the same talking points, um, and you, you don't get a you don't really get an, an image of of a kind of a very chaotic field or a very bustling field with with lots of bigger and smaller actors. There's a there's a few big actors, um, and and you know kind of the job becomes kind of reporting what they're saying or what they're thinking. Um, in this case, it's really interesting to hear how different industries are responding to the same crisis in different ways, and how there's different kind of opportunities open up even as other opportunities are, are closing down. It's interesting you bring up the difference between how academics, policymakers, think tank people talk about, say, industrialization and how someone like Walter does, where he is talking about it in a much more detailed way that it's far more than just labor. We always hear about African industrialization saying they've got cheap labor. But labor is really a small piece of this. Uh, he mentioned the electricity. That's a key part. We've talked about that in previous shows about the importance of power. In order to run a factory, you need consistent power. But more importantly, 
you need supply chains. And his point on the fact that these are not necessarily high-tech, complicated industries, but they need to have established supply chains to bring raw materials in to manufacture them, and then at the same time, reliable shipping to get things out. And that brings us back to another point that we've talked about in previous shows about the difficulty in shipping things across border. So if all of the raw materials into Factory X don't come from the same country, you're going to face a very, very difficult time getting materials from South Africa into Mozambique or into Rwanda, and then from Rwanda cross-border back out to the port in Tanzania or to Kenya. All of those cross-border transactions will start to add a lot of burden to a manufacturer. So all of that has to be harmonized before we can really see Africa begin to follow the example of what's happened here in Southeast Asia or in China where they've been able to avoid some of those problems. Here in Southeast Asia, ASEAN, things can move across borders in the ASEAN states without any, or at least a lot less friction than what we see in Africa. Yeah, and I mean, that is that is what the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement is, is aimed at doing. And, and you know, kind of it's Africa is making a lot of progress in that direction. Um, I think, you know, what 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 will help is if if is cross is more cross border infrastructure. And of course, China is a big player in that. But it's it, it's a controversial field at the moment in relation to debt. Uh, but, you know, I, I think Africa is really Africa has seen that problem and they are really moving to 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 fix it. It just takes a while. So once again, the first half numbers between China and Africa were down 20%. That could have been a lot worse given the shutdowns in trade. I'm surprised it's only 20%. But nonetheless, that's where we are. Uh, It looks like they'll close the year above $150 billion, assuming that Q3 and Q4 pick up over the first two quarters of the year, which it does look like. Africa's coming back online again. China's working up again. So more trade is starting to come. The key concern, though... And Cobus, I don't know what we do about this, is the trade deficit, that that gap has got to close. Uh, You know, I wrote about this, uh, you know, about seven, eight years when you remember the former central bank governor of Nigeria, Lamida Sanusi, I think his name was. I'm probably mispronouncing that. But he wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times uh, back in 2012, 2013, lamenting the trade deficit and how it wasn't sustainable. Your former president, Jacob Zuma also addressed this many years ago, that it's not sustainable. In many countries, it's gotten worse. Is, do you get the sense that narrowing the trade deficit with China is on the agenda? Yeah, it's it is always on the agenda, but it's you know kind of it's it, that it's kind of tucked into um, into a wider issue of of uh, of industrialization and how to how to particularly in in the case of of a country like South Africa how to create more jobs. So all of these things are, are kind of like kind of enveloped inside each other, um, and it, but it but it 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 becomes uh, you know it all kind of boils down to the same big problem, which is how to set up more factories and how to do more industrialization in. In Africa, um, and I, I, I agree with Walter that that uh, you know, kind of, one needs to look at how these things happened really on on a very local level, um, and on you know, um, like how you know how buckets were were produced in you know, kind of, in, in a rural province, for example. I think I think those those examples need to be shared more widely, um, because you know, the, the as as you say, the the. The, the electricity is one problem. The supply chains is another problem. So, so one needs to 
find a space where where that kind of development can happen, which is isn't too kind of affected by these big problems or can kind of work around them. Um, and I think there that kind of creative decision making, um, you know, is sometimes lacking on the ground in Africa. Two other points before we go very quickly is to keep an eye on the negotiations between Kenya and the United States related to the free trade agreement that the two sides are negotiating. Also, most tariffs are off or very, very low to the point of being meaningless between Europe and Africa. European leaders in the UK and in Germany and in France have all emphasized trade going forward and business going forward. It'll be interesting to see if in 2021 that becomes a bigger priority as they kind of shift away from an aid model to a trade model. So two other aspects to, to look at. These are the kind of issues that we look at every single day in our daily email newsletter. We would love for you to be a part of our growing community of readers around the world. We've got people in think tanks, in governments, military academies, embassies, uh, let's see, Kovas, NGOs, uh, you know, the United Nations. We're really excited about this great community of readers that we're starting to build uh, who get the newsletter every day. And then from the newsletter, share back comments and commentaries and feedback. And there's this great kind of discourse that's zipping around. If you'd like to join us, it's only $3 for three months. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Give it a try. See if you like it. You'll get 90 days for three bucks. I mean, that's a great deal. So you, there's almost nothing else in life that you can get for that cheap, a buck a month. So we're, we really just want to make sure it gets in your hands and you can try and see if you like it. And of course, if you have any questions whatsoever, you can email Kobus and I directly, eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com or Kobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. We're easily accessible and be careful because we oftentimes give very long emails back. So if you're not ready to get into a discussion, don't email us. But if you want to get into a nice discussion, we always love to hear from you. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. We'll be back again next week with another episode. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>